today. Uh, we do get to jump into one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's the book of James. And uh, the reason I love it so much is just because it is such a practical book. And it really gives so much real clear insight on what does it look like to live your faith. And it's a reminder to me that when it comes to our faith, it's not enough just to learn it, but we need to live it. And that's, that's what the book of James is all about. How do we take uh, this, this faith in Christ and how does that work out in our lives in practical ways? And so uh, we are going to dive into this book and see how when a person comes to faith in Christ, uh, the heart is changed and change hearts lead to change lives. And that's really what this is all about. It's important for us, I think, on the front end to understand this is not a book about how to be better. Uh, this is not a book about how to be a good person. This is a book that simply shows us when you have a genuine heart-changing faith, it begins to change the way that you live. And these are some ways that uh, should be reflected uh, in, in our lives. So this book, as we'll see here in just a minute, is written by James. And uh, it's, it's interesting to me, a couple of things about it. One is that it is addressed to the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning that it is really addressed as a what, what they would sometimes call a circular book. It was intended to be shared among different groups of people. Sometimes books are written, or letters, I should say, because they were all letters back then. The letters were written to certain churches and certain locations. This one is a more general audience. And James himself, as we'll see, identifies himself as a servant or as a slave of Christ. And that's interesting as well because James is a half-brother of Jesus. But he did not uh, try to use his position as a way of elevating himself, but just said, hey, I'm just a servant just like everybody else is. So let's jump in. And we're actually going to cover uh, about 18 verses today, but we'll take it in, in a few little bites at a time. So let's do verse 1 through 8 for now. Let's read there together. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, we'll just stop right there and, and kind of begin with this section because here's what I want us to look at in chapter 1 today. I want us to look at the perspective that God has. In other words, figurative, we're putting on our, our God glasses and we're going to get a perspective on things that God has that is really, really different from the way we normally see things. And he just jumps in with a bang here right off the bat. Verse 3, he jumps right in and begins to talk about how we should consider it all joy or pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. So, so here's uh, uh, th that, that first perspective that he has that we may not see it this way, but God sees it this way, is that trials are good. The trials are good from God's perspective. Now that, is, that sounds like crazy talk, doesn't it? That how in the world, in fact, some of you right now are going through some very difficult challenges and it doesn't feel good. In fact, sometimes it might even feel a bit like a slap in the face for you to read something like to say, wait a minute, you don't know what's going on in my life, you don't know the difficulties that I'm having. How in the world could there be something good from what we are going through? Um, 
maybe, maybe that's you know, a trial that has to do with uh, family relationships. Maybe it has to do with some pain or some difficulty, maybe some anxiety, depression. Uh, it could be relational loss. It could be uh, income, uh, financial challenges. I mean, it could be any number of things. I mean, we go through some very difficult trials in this life. And so I guess that's why James goes on and he doesn't stop there. And he says, let me tell you why that we should consider it all joy. It says, verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's his big why on why we should consider it pure joy when we face trials of all kinds, because the testing of our faith develops perseverance. And then he goes on and says that perseverance uh, develops you know, this maturity in us, and when we become mature, then we're not lacking anything. This is a great reminder to us of a reality, and I think we need to be reminded of this often. We need to come back to this often, that the ultimate goal in this life is to become more like Christ, is to become more mature in our faith. And ultimately, anything that pushes us further down that path of maturity or pushes us further down the path of Christ-likeness is a good thing. Even if that means going through trials. And, uh, you know, th this, is, this is something that when, when I read stuff like this, you know, my mind often now goes to lessons that I have learned and am continuing to learn as a parent. I'm sure many of you can relate to this, and maybe even as a grandparent. These lessons that you learn uh, that apply to our faith. And as a parent, you know, there are times where we have a different perspective that our children, our grandchildren don't have, right? Because you've been through things, you've experienced things, you're, you're able to see. And now that's not a knock at all on the kids or the grandkids. It's just that, you know, sometimes you just don't have a perspective on something until you've been through it. And so that perspective that a parent has will lead that parent to make certain decisions or to do certain things that the child may not like, right? It, it may mean, it may mean uh, removing certain things. It might mean saying no to certain things that that child wants. You know, maybe it's uh, to, to start dating before they really are at an age where that would be a healthy thing to do and they don't like that. Maybe it has to do with the individual uh, that they're dating. Maybe, maybe um, it has to do with uh, removing certain distractions. Maybe it has to do with uh, monitoring screen time. Maybe it has to do with boundaries around what types of movies and music and things that they're allowed to engage with. I mean, the, you could think of any number of things, couldn't you, where as a parent you're looking at it from one perspective saying, I'm going to put some boundaries up here, or I'm going to perhaps remove some things from your life because I want the best for you. Because I'm looking at this from the big picture, and I really want what is best for you. Now, does the child see it that way at the time? Probably not, right? Unless you have an extremely mature child. And even if you do, they probably still don't see. I mean, when you want something at that time, in that moment, it's like, but I want this. I don't want this to be taken away from me. Or, in some cases, as a parent, it's not taking something away. It's adding something to that child's life that the child doesn't want. Maybe like any type of vegetable from our experience. <laughs> Say, no, I don't want those things. But as a parent, you're like, but yes, but this is good for you. I want you to have this. Or, you know, it, it could be 
It could be involvement in church. It could be time with God. It could be as a parent, you know, you have a child that's like, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to do this. But as a parent, you say, but I know this is what is best for us. I know it is best that we, uh, that we pursue God in these different aspects of our lives. And so you do what parents do. And that is that you make those difficult decisions and say, this is what we're going to do. It, it, it sometimes feels to the child at the time like the parent is just wanting maybe to, to be mean. Maybe the parent is just wanting to be controlling. Maybe the parent just doesn't understand. It's just a little clueless and just has no idea what the child is going. I mean, all of you've been accused, either you've heard it or they've thought it, of all those things and a lot more, right, as a parent. Whereas most of the time, the motivation, and that's not to say that it's always going to be 100% pure all the time, but most of the time the motivation really is, but I'm really wanting to do what is best for you. That really is what I'm looking at, and I have a different perspective than you have. Does anybody else like me feel sometimes like you're just a child that is pouting at God when he either adds something to your life that you don't like or takes something away that you want? You know, and it's just like, but I want this, or I don't want this, and it's, but, but God has that different perspective, right? God sees things from a bigger picture. In fact, God looks at things, and when God sees our lives, He sees beginning to end. Every bit of it, He knows, right? And so that means that He knows what we need in step 72 to prepare us for step 187, right? He, he knows that already. I mean, it's, it may be way on down the road that, that what's going on right now in my life and this trial that I'm going through and the difficulty that I'm experiencing, he understands that. And he wants what's best for us. Now, the, the flip side to that as a parent is that, that you love your children and you don't want to see them hurting, right? It is very, very difficult sometimes to watch your children going through things and to see them struggling and you just want to swoop in. It's like, can I just want to remove that pain from your life? But sometimes, sometimes as a parent, you understand that there's a bigger picture there. And you understand that, man, it's really hard on me to see this. And I, this is what I believe. I, I believe with all my heart that, that when God sees us going through difficulty, that God's heart breaks over that, even though he knows it's what's best for us, right? God continues to show compassion. He continues to come alongside and say, I'm here with you. I'm here to walk through this with you. I'm going to hold you up. I'm going to give you strength that you don't have on your own. But I'm still going to allow you to go through it because I know that there is a greater purpose in all of this and that, that, that he's doing something uh, that we may not see at the time. And so it talks about in verse 3 that the testing of our faith is what develops perseverance. I, I, I look at it this way. It, it's, it's like breaking down a muscle. You know, if you exercise or lift weights or do things like that, you break down a muscle so that it can be built up stronger as it recovers. And that's a lot of what God does to us and with us and really even for us as we go through these trials. God is breaking us down at times, but he's breaking us down for the purpose of building that muscle back up stronger so that when he does his work, we will become more mature and we will be um, prepared for what comes uh, in the future. And so it's this maturing process. And then look what happens in verse 5. Look, part of that maturing process, verse 5 says, that if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. See, the, the more we grow in our faith, the more we persevere, the more we begin to turn to God for everything. 
And we ask God for wisdom in, in, in every aspect of our life. It's just whatever it is that we're going through, it's like, God, I'm, I'm asking you to provide wisdom in this area. You know, sometimes I wish I had just a quarter for every time I prayed this prayer to God. I'd have a lot of money because this is one of those prayers that just kind of keep coming back to. And it's like, okay, God, you have said. And by the way, I think it's a good idea and a good way to pray to remind God what God has already promised, right? You have already promised that if anyone lacks wisdom, that we should ask and that you would give it to us. But here's the thing. Sometimes when you ask for wisdom, when you say amen to that prayer, do you automatically have that wisdom that you asked for? Could be. Most of the time, probably not. Most of the time, it's probably not. doesn't work like that because, again, let's remember, this is a process of perseverance. Remember, God is teaching us maturity through perseverance in our faith. And so when we ask for wisdom, we continue to ask. We keep coming back. Parable, I think about that, that Jesus told about the person, you know, persistence in prayer. You go and you keep asking that neighbor for bread. And you keep asking and you keep asking. And eventually he says, you know, they'll give it to you just because of your perseverance. We, we need to continue to persevere in our asking for wisdom and not get discouraged. In fact, it tells us specifically uh, that, that in verse 6, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. See, that, that again, that, that is a continual process. Because I, I don't know anybody that never has some type of a doubt creep in, especially when they're asking for wisdom. Is God really leading me in this? Is God really giving me the answer that I'm, that I'm seeking him for? But you press through that doubt. You just continue saying, you know, I'm going to push that aside. And I'm not going to be like that one that's just blown back and forth. And I'm going to keep asking. Keep asking. Keep asking God for wisdom. And, um, and then, too, it says um, that, that when we ask and we, are un, we ask in doubt, it says that person should not believe that they will receive anything from the Lord. See, part of preparing us to receive an answer from God is this faith, this belief. I believe that God is true to his word. And I believe that when God says, ask for wisdom and I'll give it to you, eventually he will. And so I'm just going to keep asking. I'm going to keep pursuing God. I'm going to keep seeking God until I get an answer from God. So trials are good. It can push us toward him. It can cause us to be more dependent. It teaches us to grow and to persevere in our faith. That's, that's a perspective that we probably don't have on our own because from our perspective, trials are not so good. Here's a, a second thing that is a different perspective that God has from maybe what we normally have, and that is that the poor are rich. Let's keep reading, verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat, and withers the plant, its blossom fails, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. You know, from God's perspective, he says that it's the poor who are rich, and the flip side of that is that many times it's the rich who are actually poor. And, and he gives a, a very specific um, direction here at the beginning of verse 9 that's really important because it says believers in humble circumstances should take pride in their high position. That's really important. Who he's talking to here are those who have a relationship with Christ. By believer, he means somebody who's put their faith in Jesus. So somebody that's born into the family of God, that person can take pride even if they have a humble position because 
uh, of their high position that they have in Christ. Obviously, he's talking here about our spiritual condition, about our spiritual position as children of God. And it makes me think about Ephesians 2, verse 6, where it says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What a great description of what has already taken place in the life of a believer. Notice the passage, he raised us up. Not just that he one day will, but spiritually, our condition or our place spiritually now is that we have been raised up with Christ. We have been given access to heaven, to, to God. We, we are able to, to operate in this realm where we have direct communion with God. I, I mean, I think about it like this. You know, we have been, have been given uh, a position that we ourselves do not deserve. We, we don't gain that position based on our own merits. Just like if you were to show up, let's say, at the White House and say, I just want to kind of go through and, you know, kind of take a tour through and just kind of see what I want to see and I'll just want You're not going to be given access to get into the White House. But if the president says, I want you to come with me, and you get to the front door and the president says, she's with me, it's all good, you're going to go anywhere you want to go, Right? Because your access comes from somebody else. Comes from somebody who has that authority. We have no authority to access God. We don't, we don't have any, any right to have a place in the heavenly realms. Except that Christ says, she's with me. He's with me. And, and, and we are called even the you know, brothers and sisters of Christ. It's amazing. Friends of Christ. And so we have that access to him because of that. And so, uh, so that's why it says that those who are actually in humble positions, and certainly this was the case within the early church. A lot of the believers in the early church were, were poor and they struggled. And they didn't have much in this life. And he's reminding them, look, you have everything. You have what really matters. Uh, last week, we were in Revelation chapter 3. If you are with us last Sunday, we were talking about the church in Laodicea. And one of the things that he said to the church in Laodicea is that you think you're rich, but you're really not. And he said, you know, buy gold refined in the fire from me and all these different things. Clothes, I will clothe you and this eye salve so that you can see and all that. He would say, look, you think you have what you need. And I won't go back and, and, and re-preach that again from last week. But this is kind of the same idea here. He's saying that, that true riches are found in our relationship with Christ and who we are spiritually and the place that we have in Him. And it does also give this warning here that it says that those who are rich better be careful. And the reason for that, it says in verse 11, is because the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. The point that he's making is this, is that, that earthly riches are so temporary. And they're so fragile. They can disappear just like that. And, and, and what he's saying here is not, and be, I want to be clear about this, he's not saying that anybody who is rich is evil and has no place in God's kingdom. What he's saying is that those who are depending upon those riches, are, are, they're in trouble. I mean, there are plenty of examples in Scripture where godly people, God blesses and they, you know, they do have wealth and things like that. But that's not what they trusted in. That's not what their priority was. 
And it's really easy for us to begin to trust in things that are just so, so temporary and that can just be gone, you know, just in an instant. I was looking back again, uh, and I looked at this recently, but, but uh, at, at things that have just happened this year, for example, and just talking about how quickly things can change. Uh, in 2019, uh, stock prices for hotels and resorts and cruise lines had risen 34.7% in 2019. So travel-related stocks were doing incredibly well. From February 19th through February 27th, so we're talking eight days, it dropped 22.2%. Just in eight days, right before all the coronavirus stuff hit. I mean, it's, it's just a reminder of how fragile things are. I mean, we may think, hey, I've got everything that I need, and then all of a sudden something crazy comes out of nowhere, and, you know, we're reminded that, okay, what I once thought was valuable doesn't really hold any real value. But if we find our value in our, our position in Christ and our place in heaven and those kinds of that's where the real value is. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 12. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. You know, here's, here's one more thing that is a perspective that God has that sometimes we miss, and that's that God is the only source of good and the source of good only. Now, that's one you might have to read it a time or two and think about it, but God is the only source of good and the source of good only. We'll take both of those and look at them here uh, kind of separately. But, but what he's reminding us, and this is kind of the idea in verse 17 where it says every good and perfect gift comes from above. It's saying ultimately anything good has its source in God. God is the source of all good things and that he wants the best for us. In fact, it says in verse 12 that God will... Uh, give this crown of life to those who have persevered. Again, remember, that's the goal of all this. The testing of your faith, it develops perseverance. So those that do persevere, those that do mature in their faith, will receive this crown of life. In Revelation uh, 2, verse 10, it, it's the, the church in Smyrna is told that they will receive the crown of life because of the persecutions that they're going through. It seems that this crown of life is something that is specific to those who have endured and continued in their faith through difficult challenges and through trials. And so this is this, this gift that he has, this crown, again, that will last forever. It's not temporary, it's not fleeting, but it's something um, that will last forever. And so God gives us good. And we'll come back to that and talk about that more here in just a moment. But in verse 13, this is the, the, the other side of that is that God is the source of good only. Or another way of saying that is this, that, that evil does not have its source in God. What he says to us here is that, that when you are tempted, you should never say that God is tempting me. God is not responsible 
for the sinful decisions that we make. That's not on God, that is on us. Now certainly God has created a world where we are able to be tempted. In fact, even Jesus himself was tempted. In fact, it says the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. So God allows us and maybe sometimes even puts us in a place where we are tempted. But the goal of that is that, that we would be able to exercise our faith and be able to be victorious over that temptation, which is exactly uh, what happened in Jesus' life, and, and part of that too is as a son of God, he needed to experience what all that we experience and, and go through the temptation that we go through. Um, but sometimes, I, here's, here's what I think we sometimes do. I don't think anybody would come out and say, God is tempting me to sin. But subtly, sometimes we, we, kind, of, we kind of really think that. And let me give you an example what I'm talking about. I, just thinking through some things that, that I've experienced, and this is something that happens, um, you know, it's more than once, I'll just put it that way, where a, a young couple meets, they fall in love, and they decide that they are going to move in together before they get married. They're going to live together as a couple. Um, which, you know, Scripture does speak toward, and it, and it gives some very clear direction about purity in a relationship and those kinds of things. So when that takes place, and it's somebody from in our church, maybe somebody that I have a relationship with, part of my role as a shepherd of the church is to have a conversation about that and say, look, here's what Scripture says, and really just to confront that sin, to do so lovingly and with kindness and certainly with a lot of prayer and those kinds of things. But that is, that is what we do. Now let me tell you how sometimes that conversation goes. It's something like this. I've had this happen more than once. Where a couple of just looks at me and says, we believe God has brought us together. You know, God put us together and God orchestrated all of this. And essentially, the argument that is being made is, God is the reason that we are living together in a sinful relationship. And, you know, when I, when I see a, a verse like this, and it says that we should never say God is tempting me to sin. I mean, no, I don't think anybody says it like that. But, but don't we sometimes do that? And it may, it may, may look different. Maybe in, in my life it's, uh, you know, or your life it's dealing with um, anger issues. You know, and it's like, well, I, I just can't help it. This is just kind of the way God made me. And that can become an excuse for all kinds of things, right? This is just the way God made me. And because God made me this way, then, and, you know, we can excuse or explain away all kinds of sin in our lives. No one should say, it says, that when we are, that when we are tempted, that God is tempting me. God is not the source of that temptation. But it, what does it say? It says that we are tempted when we are dragged away by our own desires, in other words, it's on us. It's not something that we can blame on God or on anybody else. It's on us. And we need to understand that God is the only source of good, but he's also the source of good only. So we dare not blame God when we fall into temptation. That is not God's issue. That is ours. And the other side of that is that we need to remember that as followers of Christ... He has given us the Holy Spirit within us to empower us. The Bible tells us that we will never be tempted in such a way that God does not provide a way of escape for us. And so that's not on God. It's on us. Uh, and then let's, let's wrap it up 
with verse 18 back on the God being the source of good gifts. Verse 18 says he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. You know, as I look at my life, I can think of a lot of really good gifts that God has given me. God has given me a fantastic wife. He's given me two amazing daughters I couldn't be more proud of. He's given me great parents, great family, a wonderful church to serve. I mean, the list could just go on and on and on of all the good gifts that God has given me. But I'm going to tell you, verse 18, when it says that, that God has given us birth through this word of truth, there is no gift that compares to that. Because what he's talking about here, he's talking about spiritual birth, obviously more than just a physical birth. He's talking about the fact that God has given us birth into his family. God has given us access to be part of his family. He has, he has given us forgiveness through Christ. I mean, Jesus came to this earth and gave up his life. He died on the cross for us because he was paying the penalty for our sins. He was giving himself for us as an expression of his love, as an expression of his desire to have a relationship with every single one of us. Guys, that's the greatest gift we have ever, ever been offered. And so uh, I want to just end on that note, that reminder that God does give to us this incredible opportunity, this incredible gift for us to receive his salvation, to receive his grace. But you know, we were reading through, we have a group of men that meet on, on Friday mornings and we just read a different passage of scripture each week. We were in Matthew 7 this Friday. And one of the things that it talks about in Matthew 7 is the fact that, that the, there is a wide and a narrow gate. And Jesus said, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. And so although it is true to say that God has, has extended to each of us this offer of salvation, God has, has offered to us to be born into his family. The flip side of that is that the vast majority don't receive that. That the, the gate that leads to life is a narrow gate. And he said, and it says after this, it says only a few find it. Which tells me that it's so important for us to make sure that what we are trusting in when it comes to uh, our salvation and our forgiveness, that we are trusting in one thing only, and that's Jesus and his finished work on the cross. That is the narrow gate. That is the only way for us to find life. And I just want to end on that note today by asking you that question, have you entered through that narrow gate? And if the answer is yes, then this is a great opportunity to say, God, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for the salvation that you have offered and for the life that you have given me through Christ. And if the answer is no, then I want to encourage you to enter through that, gate, that narrow gate by faith, by giving Christ your life, by trusting in him, by acknowledging that I am sinful and I, and I fall short of God's standard. But Jesus met that standard for me. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you today for the truth of your word. And I thank you for the, the life that you offer. Lord Jesus, may we respond to you in faith today for any that maybe haven't yet. I pray that today is that day where they trust you, where they give their hearts and their lives to you today. Lord, you are so good to us and help us to see things from your perspective. It's hard when we're going through trials to see them as good. 
And it's hard when we feel like we're lacking to realize that we have everything. We have true riches. And uh, Lord, it can be difficult sometimes not to believe that, um, that you bring bad things into our lives. But we know that you don't do that either. So just help us to see things, I pray, from your perspective today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.